Thank you, Pastor Eric and pastors of Trinity Baptist Church, the members. Uh, it is an honor to stand here before you and bring God's word to you this evening. Good evening. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. It is good to see you all this evening, uh, even as we go before God's word uh, or to God's word to be able to look at this important subject. God does not believe in atheism. God does not believe in atheism. We have read the text. Romans 1 will be my focal text uh, as, as we begin. And so, um, allow me just to say a brief word of prayer before we continue. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this privilege to sit under your word, to be able to look at uh, this prevalent uh, issue uh, of our day, atheism, to be able to see and, and look at it from your word, from the perspective of your word, as we, as we go into it and, and, and especially look at what you expect of man. May we be moved not only, uh, not only to want to live for ourselves, but especially for you. As I present the gospel, may this be of benefit to any here who may not believe in Christ, who may not know Christ. May this seed be planted in their hearts and indeed grow into a mighty oak. All in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul is an apostle, a man who lived in the first century under the Roman Empire. And you'd think that those were good times. They, uh, they were living under what was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. The emperor had made sure that Rome could live under peace. Was it true peace, lasting abiding peace, especially for Christians. You would think that living in Rome meant, and especially with these apostles, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, you would think, you would think that they would not face problems as they went out to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 1 is one of those letters that proves that these men, the apostles, had to contend with the very same issues we contend with today. As Paul is writing this letter to these Roman Christians that he has not yet met, he, he begins by giving thanks to God for them and praising God for their faith. And he begins by setting before them this son of David who came according to the flesh from that line of David the king, a son of David, a true king. But then he quickly switches gears. Halfway through, he proclaims this gospel that he's not ashamed of, the good news about Jesus Christ. But as some of you here know, the good news 
as a background. There is some bad news. What is the bad news? In this context here, the bad news is that God's wrath is coming. It's perfectly aimed like an arrow is aimed towards the bull's eye and it's aimed at mankind because of man's unrighteousness. Man is a sinner. Man has gone the other side, the other way of God and one of his chief sins is not acknowledging the true eternal God. Atheism is not new. It has been in existence from way back. And here is Paul, in effect, countering atheism, not by yielding to its demands, but by exposing it for what it truly is. Men who know God exists, but refuse to acknowledge his existence. Indeed, God does not believe in atheists. Every single human being knows God exists. And that is what God himself testifies. And you see this all the way from the Old Testament. God made Adam and Eve. He made them in his image. He put in them what was necessary for them to know right from wrong, and he expected them to dutifully obey his laws. But Adam and Eve, they decided to go another way, their own way. And there began our problems. And the story repeats it itself over and over and over again, like a broken record. God seeking man, God telling man his righteous true law for the benefit of man, but man always going away from God, always seeking his own way, and going so far as to refuse that this God who made us, this God who is good, this God who desires our benefit, he does not exist. He simply is not there. And so, you find passages or portions in the Bible where God addresses this problem. They, they are called sinners. They are called wicked. And that is to us, naturally. He calls these who refuse to acknowledge him fools. And here in Romans 1, we find the characteristics of these people and their practices here mentioned. This is the end of their thinking. The end of their faith that they claim is not faith. And finally, their eternal end, which is not to their advantage. However, looking at not only this passage, but the subject at large, we must take a few steps back and think Think for the atheist. Think, consider the atheist. Consider the person who refuses to acknowledge God. Think about how could any human being get to that point where they refuse to acknowledge that God exists? What leads 
men and women to get to that point? What are some of the factors that affect what we call preconceptions and presuppositions that we tend to hold? With regard to this subject in general, there are varieties of factors that influence how we think, our presupposition, which is what we use even in our decision making. One, family and upbringing, our parents, our immediate family, they affect how we think. It is why it's so important to have a father and a mother in the home. They help you to have that general worldview. Having a father, a mother, people who are of authority in your family that lead you down the wrong path will definitely affect the way you think. Save for God's salvation. But it's not just family. Our community and culture, someone said, we are products of our culture, of our generations. It's why you're wearing the way you're wearing and not a Roman robe. You're products of your own culture. And that affects the way you think, the way you speak, and so on and so forth. But it does not just end there. Education and media affects our preconceptions and our presuppositions. And you're going to see why it's so important for this text here. Because the kind of education you receive, you know, whether it's brainwashing, whether it's true education where the intellect is being built up, oh, that affects the way you make decisions. If, if your default is to accept every other news piece that you hear on television, on social media, that's a reflection of the kind of education you have, the kind of re, uh, a relationship that you have with media. And we are exposed to a lot of information through books, through televisions, through movies, and of course through the internet. But it does not end there. Our own life experiences, they also shape our beliefs, our presuppositions. Maybe you went through trauma as a child, tragedy. Or maybe you grew up in a well-to-do family. All you've known is success. You do not know pain or suffering. But that definitely affects the way you think of life. If you're ever thinking, oh, I'll make it. I have some money. Finally, our ideologies and philosophies. And that's the end of it all. This all helps us to build our ideology, our philosophies, our faith. What we believe. All these, they affect our presuppositions. What are presuppositions? Just very quickly. These are foundational beliefs or assumptions that individuals hold before engaging in any argument, investigation, or reasoning. No one comes to an argument empty-minded. You have presuppositions. You have beliefs that you hold dearly before you come to any argument. They serve as a starting point for all subsequent reasoning and investigation. Now, in Christianity, 
presuppositions are essential because they inform how we understand and interpret God's word vis-a-vis or in relation to the world around us. And what exactly informs our presuppositions as Christians? Is it these factors that I have mentioned? Sure, you were brought up in a family, say, that suffered some sorts of trauma or in a poor, not well-to-do financial state. Sure, you may not have received the best education and you may not have had social media at your disposal as you grew up. But what's the one thing that all Christians should rally around with regard to our beliefs, our preconceptions? What's the one thing that we must say must guide our minds? God's word, the Bible. It's the Bible that informs our worldview. We view the world through the lens of the Bible. Because if you view it otherwise, we will interpret things differently, like the world. Christians must embrace biblical presuppositions as the starting point for all our thinking and reasoning. We're going to have such a statement in our minds. God must be the starting point. The Bible must be the authoritative source and the Bible alone for all our thinking. Therefore, in line with that, allow me with that particular focus to explain how the gospel is the greatest anti to atheism. Let me begin with some definitions. Number one, agnosticism. We hear that term sometimes thrown around. Agnostic, I'm an agnostic. Now, why that is important for us is because those who claim to be atheists claim to be two kinds of atheists. They are either very militant Gnostic atheists. That word Gnostic simply means to know. When I say militant Gnostic atheist, I mean the atheist who says, I know God does not exist and I can prove it. Or agnostic atheists. Who say, maybe he exists. But it's unlikely he exists. Show me the proof. This idea uh, is something that was there from way back, uh, developed into the kind of modern atheism that we see today. And, and it just tends itself to what we today know as atheism. It is a belief system that asserts that God or any gods, for that matter, do not exist. They argue that there is no evidence for the existence of God, and the burden of proof lies with the Christian, because in this context we are 
making a case or we are talking about the true God of the Bible. So it, 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 the, the burden of proof, they say, lies with a Christian to provide evidence for God's existence. They hold that belief in God is based on blind faith and not any acceptable evidence. And therefore, Christianity is irrational. This is a worldview that rejects the belief in the supernatural. They do not accept miracles. Anything that is beyond the material and the natural that the common senses can perceive, they challenge. They place an emphasis on rationality and scientific inquiry as the means of understanding the world around them. So they are presuppositions, they are preconceptions, the lens through which they view the world, they say, we have. It's your eyes, your ears, your tongue, your nose, your common senses, what you can see. Therefore, on that basis, they claim, reality is not true. Their roots can be traced back to Greek philosophy. But if you are to trace them even in more closer time, there were those in thinkers like Voltaire who rejected traditional religious beliefs and argued for a secular worldview based on reason and empirical evidence. They believed that the universe was a rational and orderly place and that human reason was capable of understanding it and interpreting it correctly. We are going to see why that's inconsistent. They rejected, as I say, the idea of divine revelation. They argued that knowledge could only be gained through observation and experimentation. In very important words for what atheism is. And today, atheism is a growing movement they don't like to be called a movement, but it's a growing movement around the world. According to uh, the World Religion Database, as of 2020, Christianity is the largest religion in the world, followed by Islam, and then Hinduism, Buddhism, and Sikhism. Atheism and agnosticism collectively account for 16.4% of the world population. That's a huge number, given that we passed the 8 billion mark. I think, was it uh, late last year? In Africa, Christianity, according to statistics, is the largest religion, again, followed by is Islam, and then this traditional African religion and others. At least in Africa, it's a smaller percentage. Atheism and agnosticism account for 4% of Africans. Now, when I say atheism and agnosticism, I am including militant atheists who, it is said, are a smaller number. It's 1%. Now, those statistics, when you hear them, you might think it's not a big deal. 1% is not such a large number. But if we are saying that Africa has over 1 billion people, 1% of a billion is quite a huge number. Talking about, is it 10 million plus people? Who, and the 1% is the militant ones. 
who actively reject, do not acknowledge that there is a God who exists. Now that should concern us as Christians. Because these 10 million people are spread out throughout the continent. In Kenya, atheists, through the president of Atheists in Kenya, they have an organization, Atheists in Kenya. He's called Harrison Mumia. He's challenged the traditional views on the role of religion in society, advocating for greater separation, not just of church and state, which we would, in a sense, agree with, but of Christ in the public space. They have also challenged the basis of morality codes enshrined in the Kenyan constitution, calling for greater relaxation. In effect, what am I saying? That those things that we hold dear, those things that our doctrines end with, the moral codes that draw from God's nature and character are being challenged by those who reject his existence. Which, of course, is consistent. If you reject God, you will reject his ways, and therefore you will reject the benefits that he gives to mankind, to society. The Bible, as it begins, does not try to apologize or to defend or to prove that God exists. How does the Bible begin in Genesis 1? In the beginning, God created, and it goes on and on, and there is no stopping the writers as they continue to show work after work, character after aspect after attribute of God. The world, you've read here, Romans 1, is there for all to see. Unless you're, you've been struck by blindness, you've been struck by one of these great impediments of enjoying the natural world. Even though sin struck the world, human beings still get to enjoy what God created at the beginning. Why is that important? Because aside from salvation, the greatest miracle you find, by salvation, of course, I mean including the resurrection of Christ, the greatest salvation you, uh, miracle you find in the Bible is that of creation. God created the world out of nothing. Nothing at all. And what is the result of it all? Mankind snubs, looks the other way, treats God like a byproduct of creation, someone that he can basically ignore, an opinion to the many opinions out there, while still enjoying the creation that God himself made. See the grace of God? When you read Romans 1, it should, in a sense, fill you with tears 
to read how God has given this evidence for himself for all, not only to see from afar. They're not in prison. To enjoy experience. To benefit from. Yet, the great conviction that they tend to deny this God with. Oh, what tears should fill our eyes when we hear a man, a woman call themselves atheists without God. Atheists argue that the evidence for God's existence is not conclusive. It's not there to see. In fact, if you've met one, I have some who are friends of mine. If you've met one, the argument will basically get down to, show me this God and I will believe. Show me where he is. Even if you're not able to call him, show me a way to be able to see him. Romans 1, very clear. Verse 20. Begin from verse 19. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, he is invisible. Now there we have a problem. Is invisible. We cannot perceive him with our common senses. There is all the evidence for the non-existence of your God. Attributes are reading from the NKJV. I just want to see what the ESV says. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. It's not as if God is trying to hide. Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And that's sad ending. So they are without Some of you may know what it's referring to. Of course, it's referring to what we call nature. Creation. The things that we see. The trees that we see out there. As you go out and you see the creation of, of, of God. As you enjoy. As you look to enjoy some of these epic scenes. The rivers. The rift valley. That all is God shouting. See my work. See me. See what I have done that you may enjoy. Despite your sin. What are the claims? One of the claims is that atheism is not a belief. It's a lack of belief. It's not a religion. But does that claim Stand to the evidence before us. They say that for us, we are challenging 
what is already a belief, that there is a God, and therefore we should not be compared with religions such as Christianity or Islam that has positive belief. However, they do have beliefs, presuppositions, preconceptions about the nature of God and the nature of reality. You may wonder, they have ideas about the nature of God? Sure. The atheist does not negate nothingness. He's, especially for the militant, the Gnostic, I don't use these terms a lot to scare anyone, the one who says they know God does not exist, on what basis do they know beyond reasonable doubt with all certainty that God does not exist? They organize themselves into groups and communities holding positive beliefs about reality, about humanity. And they rally around them. This is not a lack of belief. They have beliefs about morality. That morality should not be based on the nature of God. Now, why is that important? Because for Christians, our idea of morality, again, is not a neutral one. It's not an idea that is out there in the air. Morality has a standard. That standard is God. Now, if our morality brings the greatest good for humanity, the expectation is that the one who is truly neutral should accept this good. But unless you have a positive idea and understanding about morality and can be able to make your own standard of morality, whether that standard moves goalposts or not, you have a positive belief. It is not something that you're getting from the air or from chemical compounds in your mind forming an opinion. It's coming from somewhere. It has an anchor. It's holding somewhere. Everyone has beliefs about reality, about sanity. These are not humanistic ideas. Again, as Christians, our idea of reality, our basis of reality begins with God's reality. And everything else flows from that. We cannot begin with man. They are men who are figments of our imaginations. We have them in movies. We have them when we get sick. What is the basis of reality if not the immovable God? If your basis for reality is something else, you have a positive belief in that thing. If your basis for reality, and we've seen people who act like this, is a certain movie that you are so dedicated to, you wear the way they wear, you speak the way they speak, you act the way they act, that is your belief.
Atheism is a positive assertion that God does not exist. Again, another claim that Christianity is delusional and dangerous. Of course, they'll put this to all religions, but it so happens Christianity is the largest. They claim that religion is responsible for many of the world's problems, such as wars and violence and discrimination. Is there some truth to this? Sure. False religion is responsible for a lot of the things that we have seen throughout history to date when we look at the Shakahola cult. Those who claim to know God but do not know him. They cannot be owned by God as his own. But atheism is not able to make that mistake. Whereas that claim might be true towards false religion, it is also true towards atheism itself. Why? Go through history and find that there are men who held to this ideology. Men such as Stalin of the USSR. Mao of China. Avowed atheists who are responsible for some of the greatest atrocities in the world. Christianity teaches that every individual made the image of God. Any man, any woman who dares go astray from that biblical principle by his actions, denies the truth of God. That is what some of the Puritans called practical atheism, which is found amongst people who claim to be Christian. Another big problem, the problem of evil. There is so much evil. There is so much sickness. Why do we die? Why do disasters happen? Why did the accident happen? Why did Shakahola happen? If God is all-powerful and all-good. A big problem. And I can tell you, it's not an easy answer to search for. But the Bible provides the answers to this problem. And they have many others that I will not get into. But these claims are all answered in the Bible especially the way that God answers them. Not only here in Romans, but in Psalm 14, verse 1. God calls atheism. Even on that basis, foolishness. Now, I want to be sensitive. It might seem like I'm here to insult the atheists who are either listening or here with us. That is not the case. The Bible in Psalm 14 verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The first thing you notice there is that God acknowledges the existence of self-proclaimed atheists. Not in the way that they would like. He calls them fools. What is foolishness? Foolishness is not knowing better where we ought to know better. It is claiming to be blind while we have eyes 
closing our eyes to the sun and saying, I am blind to be deaf while we have ears to be mere chemical processes while we have souls. It is foolishness precisely because it denies the evidence of God's existence. Yet this is evident in the natural world and in human experience. It denies the existence of objective morality. Because if there is no God, there is no basis for objective morality, and therefore anything goes. I can act the way I want because there is no authority to question me when I act in a way that is not in line with what he says. Objective morality exists because God exists. He is the foundation of morality. We all fall short of that foundation. His character provides the standard of what is right and wrong, and that's why the moral law is there and abiding, not for Christians only, but for all humanity. It promotes social order and human flourishing. What did we read here in Romans 1? Professing to be wise. Verse 22, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Since God was no longer the source, or rather the standard of morality for them, he gave them over to their own standard. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature, rather than the creator, who is blessed forevermore. In verse 28, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. They did not want him in their minds. And so he gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. That's what morality is, to do what is fitting. What happens to them? Being filled with all unrighteousness. Verse 29. Evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, and the list goes on. This is the result of denying God in society because we deny his standards of right and wrong. What happened at the garden? They were told. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What happened? Did they abide in that commandment? No. They wanted to make their own standard. What did it bring? Except this very thing.
in denying the existence of God, they insist on following what is called the scientific method of proving God. Yet when asked for an alternative for God's existence, what is produced, 19th century has great answers to atheistic issues from a natural man's point of view. What are the answers? Because of what was called rationalism, that idea that whatever my mind conceives must come from what I see, what I hear, what I speak, what I smell, what I touch. Because of that materialistic and naturalistic way of viewing things, they came up with alternatives to creation. Because with creation, they will disprove their own theory, will disprove the reality of God, it is thought. And what are these things? We, I assume, many of us, there are some kids here who may not have heard of the Big Bang Theory. And that is what is given as the alternative of the miracle of creation. And what happens there, that creation begins with a singular point because of what is called inflation. And as material collides together, this, over the course of millions of years, produces life. So life comes from non-life. Did I hear that story somewhere? Life from non-life with no agent? Of course, the agent is chance. Had to be in the mix. So that somehow, as this life begins, it begins in a simple manner, single-celled, and this single-celled is asexual, it can reproduce on its own, and as time goes by, billions of years, it is said, somehow another equally reproductive being or creature is created. And over billions of years, they work together so that they are able to both reproduce. And now they become more complex. They start with single cells. Now they are multiple cells. There's no land. It's all water. So land is also forming in the process by chance. And as time goes by, these, these creatures, they begin to reproduce and, and form all kinds of simple celled and some complex cell creatures which begin to adapt to the environment around them. And, and soon land forms and some of the cells begin to become amphibious to test out the land, whereas they are made fitting for water. And somehow, as one goes out, and over billions of years, it becomes adaptable for the land, another partner must be found that they can reproduce together and form by chance. An ape. From an, an amoeba to an ape. Of course, I'm, I'm, I'm giving a very great summary of what is given or postulated in this. But it all began with one single point. One point. That's where the Big Bang happened. 
such a big bang that it moved the entire world. From then on, everything moved. Locomotion was finally realized. But where did it come from? What gave the impetus for that non-life to somehow begin to move with another non-life? And finally, to make contact and explode and voila, here we are. There is no rational explanation. None whatsoever. It is not attainable alternative. So what do they do? For them, the creature is better to glorify than the creator. Matter, which is created, not eternal, must be given first eminence. And not God, the creator, who made all things by the power of his simple word. Atheism leads to futility of mind. Atheism leads to futility of society. Atheism leads to futility of the individual. Everything breaks down because the most important being, the one who the world cannot survive with or without, is out of that equation. That is the result of atheism. That is the result of refusing to acknowledge God. There is moral relativism, as you have seen here. Goalposts are changed. Men begin to use other men for their own sexual pleasure, and so do women. What is fitting is not followed. There is no objective morality. There is no one or nothing that we must be accountable to. We can do what we want, eat, play, and die. Who will you stand before? Ethics is thrown out the window. Atheism is inherently pessimistic, especially when it comes to transcendence. They have no basis for majesty or glory. After all, everything is passing away. Why should we gaze and be awed at the glorious one, the most beautiful one, if everything will pass away eventually? What's the use? What's the use for spending my time learning about my Lord if I just live and die and I'm forgotten never to be realized in Christ? What's the use? Death is a huge impediment for all mankind because it is unnatural. We were not made to die. But they do not have an answer. First, regarding how death came into the world or what we can do with death. What must we do? Accept reality and die. The, essentially, that is the foundation. Those words may not come out of their lips, but the principles are there. There is no hope 
to look up to, no future to speak of. As a Christian, I am greatly expectant of eternity. Not just of a few years, not just of these 80, 70, 60, 10, whatever number of years God has apportioned to me, but of all eternity, not just to live somewhere sitting fat on a bed forever, but seeing, seeking, discovering who God is and is so great we'll need an eternity to find him out. That is something worth dying for. That is something worth gazing at. That is something worth looking at. And despite all the problems that I see, despite all the natural calamities, despite Shakahola, I can hope in the one who redeems mankind. There is no such answer there. None. It's all darkness and silence. Death. As human beings, Romans 1 makes the point emphatically. We have fallen short. We have failed God. The wrath of God is coming for mankind. We are sinners and rebels. All together collectively, we have this problem that is worse than death. God's wrath is coming and is coming to kill. To kill his enemies. In the midst of that, Paul presents the hope for mankind. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. The good news about Jesus Christ not only helps us to answer these problems that are posed to us either by atheistic principles, naturalistic, materialistic principles that you may think are so far away from you, but you see and interact with every day, the doubts that we have, the times that we actually practice atheism in our own lives, which should, of course, cause us to cry out, oh, wretched man that I am. The gospel has the antidote to that problem. The gospel of Jesus Christ. It provides a coherent and compelling worldview that explains why God exists and why man exists. It is a gospel that tells us that God exists because he is. Nothing can change him. He is the unchangeable constant that is there, never changing, abiding. And it is us who must adjust ourselves to him, his existence. He owes no one an explanation for his existence. Even though, that question you remember? Where is your God? Show him that I may see him. He did come. He did come in the very flesh. You see how John begins in 1 John? That which we touch. 
touched, that which we saw, that which we heard. We handled him, God in flesh, blessed forevermore. Oh, you want to see God? See him in Christ. He came. He spoke. He walked among us. He has been here. And what did man do to him? Oh, if he comes, what do you think you would do to him? Oh, we would love to think we would be amazed. We would love to think we would be joyful together. But John, we love to read John 3.16. We barely go past that. Assures us in the succeeding verses, especially from verse 18. Mankind loves darkness. He does not want the light because what does the light do? Exposes his nature. I know my sins. If Christ was to show me all my sins, oh, I would weep. That's who we are by nature. Sinners, wicked, rebellious. It's not as if we call these those who are out there. It's not as if sin is out there in the environment somewhere. Sin is in us as sure as your blood is in you. Sin is in you. And there is only one antidote. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ and the work that he did for us. First by showing that God does indeed exist. Here I am, handle me, see me, touch me, worship me. But even greater than that, what he does in light of what mankind does. How he responds to it. The fact that Jesus did not just come and after he had required mankind to show his dutiful responsibility of worshipping him, of sitting at his feet at all times, of loving him with all that we have and we are, that Christ did not call, as the apostles had suggested, the angels to come from heaven and destroy rebellious mankind. But what did Jesus do? Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. We were not lost as an accident. You know, sometimes when you're reading that verse and you think those who are lost, somehow God lost them accidentally. That's not what happened. How are we lost? By our own willingness to be lost. That we brought this upon ourselves. The judgment, the wrath of God that is spoken here in Romans chapter 1. And how did Jesus respond to that? By loving sinners. Loving us so much in this great way. That he not only lived amongst us for 33 and a half years. And in those years fulfilled obedience for us. The son never needed his own obedience. The son never needed to be baptized. Baptism has to do with sin. He was not a sinner. It was for us that he did all these things. But not just his life. His sufferings. His death. 
for us. That as Jesus died on that cross, even those who are crucifying him, what is Jesus crying out? Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they are doing. Forgive them. What love? I don't know what your idea of love is. A man, a person who gives up all he has and he is for you. And not only that, he takes up all your faults on himself. And then he distributes all the merits. Every kind of saving, if I'm to use a, a modern term, a saving of righteousness that he has and that he's been given. He does not all hold it and say, now truly I see that these people do not deserve. And we did not deserve any righteousness. But what does he do? He gives it to us all. And he resurrects. What is the point as I come to a close? As you read Romans 1. As you see the gospel in the Bible. As you consider the subject of atheism and go beyond the statistics and the definitions. What does Christianity have to offer? And by Christianity, don't get me wrong. I don't mean a religion, even though we are a religion. I don't mean it in the way the government. What does God, to be more specific, have to offer to mankind who rejects him? God freely offers hope beyond the grave. Something that atheism cannot even think up. God offers hope beyond the grave. And it's not just a hope that he's dangling like a carrot to take away. It is a hope that we can apprehend and grasp by faith. The hope of true abiding life. Eternal life. God, after death, has to offer a heaven for those who trust in Christ. He has a life that never ends. And it's not only one that never ends, but is lived in pain and sorrow, but one that is abundant in every way to offer every man, woman, or child that believes in Christ. God has that to offer to all mankind. But greatest of all, God has Christ to offer to all men. And Christ is not offered as if for a future date, Christ is offered even today, to any who believe in him. Not, not just believing that he existed 2,000 years ago, but who believe that he died for them. Who recognize, oh, yeah, those things. I think I am a sinner. Those things that we see later on in, 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 in Romans, especially from verse 28 onwards. The fact that I'm unrighteous, evil, covetous, Malicious, I envy, I hate my brother, I love division, I lie, I love talking about people behind their back. Oh yes, I hate God, I'm proud, I know how to invent evil. I have disobeyed my parents and every kind of authority and so on and so forth. These things are what Christ saves us from, even now. 
not just in the coming age. God has purpose and meaning for the world. He did not create it to leave it to vanity. Though it is subjected to some form of vanity, the world has meaning because God is its creator. Everything God creates is good and will see its purpose achieved. Everything. Let me tell you, even evil has a purpose. It glorifies the justice of God. Because it shows that God is a just God who will not leave the evil unpunished. Even hell was created by God. It has a glorious purpose. It glorifies God. Why? It shows that he is a just one who will not look the other way. Who will not let sin go unpunished. Oh, Sinners may escape this world's justice system. Hitler, if he did not become a believer, may have escaped with one bullet after killing, after torturing millions of people. And one may wonder, where is the justice in that? Where is the justice in a murderer killing themselves and dying in a peaceful manner? Oh, the creator, he did not create to sustain without an end. The end of the creator is the judge. And he will judge. He will judge. God makes suffering have meaning. It's not just evil. Even suffering for the Christian. It has meaning. Every human being at some point will suffer. They will go beyond what they think they are capable of going beyond. Who sustains them? Who keeps them? Who grants them the ability to be able to go through? But even to go beyond that general sense of suffering. For the Christian as they suffer especially for the gospel. For Christ. Where we go all that end? Other than reward other than the eternal life that I'm talking about. God offers love to all who believe in him, Christ. And when God is proclaimed to be love, in a special way, he is love to every Christian. Every Christian receives eternal love from God in a way that will never end and never be interrupted. That there will be flowing love from God forever. We will never, especially in his presence locally, be in a state of doubt, pain, sorrow, insufficiency. The very things that bring problems into this world will be non-existent. He offers power. Over sin, darkness. Things that you see from verse 28. Some of you have tried to overcome. You've tried to overcome a hateful heart. You've tried to overcome your own unrighteousness. You've tried to overcome the fact that you hate God. You've tried to overcome an addiction. You have tried to overcome disobedience. You have tried not to think of evil and found that your mind 
somehow overrides your instructions and invents evil. There is only one way to overcome that in Christ with a new nature. That can never be overcome in the Atheism does not have an answer. God does. And it's only because he exists. And we exist because of him. Finally, joy. Eternal joy. One may think, oh, these are good, holy principles and codes that have nothing to do with joy, with that state of contentment, with that state of feeling sufficiently provided for. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And many times, holiness is put in contradistinction to joy, as if they are at war with one another. The attributes of God, the things that come from God, do not fight. Because God is harmonious in and of himself. He is able to make these things work together for his glory. Not that they add glory to him, but they ascribe glory to him because he made them. But for your benefit. If you will enjoy God, if you will live a life that is, you know that question we used to ask in, in primary school? Will I live forever in heaven, clapping, singing hymns, becoming bored because um, I keep repeating the same thing over and over again? No. There is no boredom where God is. It is only joy. And where the Spirit is, there is fullness of joy. A joy that you, I assure you, will never experience on this side of eternity. So think of any great joy you've had, whether it was receiving a prize that you were after, whether it was achieving something that you labored so greatly to achieve and against all odds achieved it, whether it's being sustained through something that was so traumatic that you had lost all hope, but God somehow got you through it and the joy that was awaiting you on that other end. Think of all those things. And it is not a drop in the ocean of joy that Christ has with him. Atheism has no joy. It is only trying to prove that God does not exist. Trying to fight the joy that God has to give. But in God, in Christ, to be specific, there is fullness of joy beyond measure. And God calls all who will trust in him through Christ to come and partake. Christ, we are told, is the heir of God, but we are co-heirs with him. And in that co-inheritance, in that co-heirship, he gives us all things. So that in Ephesians 1 we read, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. There is nothing that God will not give. To those who trust in Christ. If you believe in Christ. If you will know him today as your savior. As your Lord. As the one whom you exist for. He has this to offer to you. 
so that no matter what trouble you're going through, affliction, name it, doubt in your mind, dilemma, oh, there is abiding joy in Christ. And not even Satan can snatch it from the believer. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, how great you are, how glorious you are, first for revealing yourself to us, we who went astray. You made yourself known to us, and not just as a judge full of wrath, but as a loving Father. You have revealed yourself, especially in your word, you have revealed yourself in creation for all to see, but especially in your word that we may see Christ. If we gain the whole world, even if we acknowledge the whole world belongs to you without bowing the knee to Christ, what benefit is that for us? So help our hearts, Lord. Help especially those of us who are doubting, those who think that we are sincere in our questioning of God. Help us to apprehend who Christ is. Help us to see the things that he did and said, but also who he was and still is. Help us, Lord, to grasp this truth. Even those who believe, continue growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to look to Christ at all times. No matter how dark it is, even when we go through the valley of the shadow, uh, the shadow of the valley of death, even though we walk through the fire, to know that Christ is with us, is for us, that we may believe and grow in that belief. Help us to please you in this way because you are pleased by those who come to you by faith. It is in his name. That we pray. Amen.